0: Hello?
1: Oh, thanks. Thank you very much. Can I probably have some trouble for some water, please? Yes, thanks. Nice thank you. you. Sorry, I don't normally do all this. It's a long interview, so... Oh, that's thanks. Hello? Hi. Is that it? Hello, hi, hi. It is, yes.
0: Hi, it's Krista Tippett.
1: Hi, Krista. Thanks hi, for, how's Thanks it for doing this. It's Krista, isn't it? It's Krista. Krista. Krista, right, K-R-I-S-T-A. sorry.
0: K-R-I-S-T-A. Yeah.
1: Sure.
0: I am... Um, was at a conference at Windsor Castle this past summer on uh, with a bunch of people talking about religion and public life, and I heard you on the BBC then, and I've wanted to interview you ever since, so I'm really glad <laughs> <Right. that> could, <laughs> I could get you in.
1: It, was this where Douglas Murray and um, Robert Gleese were? No. No, maybe not, no. right? No,
0: there were... It was a, quite an eclectic gathering of... Um, I don't know members of the House of Lords and people work well, lords and people working in think tanks and some mm. religious scholars and uh, anyway um, do, do you have questions of me? Would you like to hear a little bit about the show we do?
1: Yes that that would be uh, that, that would be helpful and okay. um, I should apologize for being late. I'm sorry. It's just uh, oh that's all London right. Well
0: we'll I get going. A I, there's a lot to talk about. So but this right. is um, this is a program this on public radio stations, which is the closest thing we have to the BBC. Mm-hmm. It's not as vast and and uh, and uh, and all pervasive, but um, it's uh, you know it it's heard. It tends to public radio tends to be heard in this country by by a variety of people, but especially people who are leaders in their communities, people who are um, educated, and mm-hmm. uh, and so it's an influential medium. Mm. And uh, over the years, I've interviewed uh, quite an array of Muslim thinkers. I'm very interested in exploring religion from the inside as opposed to Mm -hmm. hearing from pundits and people who analyze religion from the outside. Mm -hmm. And um, so I think your story, uh, as I heard you speaking when I was there and as I've read your book, is absolutely suited to what we do. And I'd love to send you some of the programs we've done with them. with Muslims, including people like Ingrid Mattson, who's the... Oh, yes. N- yes, yes have yes, you yes, met um, Some yes. of them, I'm sure, you have come across people we've interviewed over the years.
1: You know, Ingrid, I know about I can send you my email details. Maybe yeah. You might, you might, you're, you're, I suppose, is Krista... Uh,
0: Tippett. T-I-P-P-E-T-T. But we've... Um, uh-huh. We have... Okay. Com- my producer has your email details, so...
1: Sure. Okay. Yeah. Right.
0: So let's go. So I'd like to talk for a while, just, you know, draw some of your story that you tell and then talk about some of the larger issues, um... That are playing themselves out in the world now, um, and mm. the the larger conversation that you've become very much a part of, having written the book. Does that sound okay?
1: It, it sounds fine. Yeah, All problematic, right. but let's that, that start. <laughs> <laughs> yes. yeah. yeah,
0: yes, I've been steeped in this for the last few days, so I have a sense of that. Um, so, you know, it it, it is it is um, striking when one begins to read your story. You growing up Muslim in Britain in the nineteen eighties. There was a lot of complexity to that. Um, obviously, the National Front was at its peak, and yet your childhood, your early childhood, was full of diversity and contact and ease with different others. You describe yourself as sort of a Muslim choir boy, <laughs> mm, hmm. um, and I think that you know, I think that there is a a kind of very broad, generalized sense uh, in in the United States, in particular, perhaps a stereotype. That Mm -hmm. it is globally poor and illiterate young Muslims who are prone to radicalization. But this is really not the story in Great Britain, and you are a prime example of that. Um, so you're absolutely here. right.
1: Yeah. It's, no, no, you're right. It's not the story in Great Britain, and it's not the story in the Arab world mm-hmm, either. Mm-hmm. Um, large numbers of um, British Muslims who become radicalised tend to become from, uh, tend to come from educated middle class backgrounds. Last summer's um, attempted attacks on the Tiger Tiger nightclub in London um, was. Carried out by middle class um, medical students. Right. Um, the 7 7 bombings was led by a classroom assistant who was a university graduate. Mm-hmm. Um, and also in the Arab world, uh, if you look at the research conducted by the sociologist Saaduddin Ibrahim um, in Egypt, he, he catalogues the fact that the vast majority of Muslim Brotherhood um, rank and file members are from. Uh, a middle class, a disenchanted middle class who've moved from the villages into the cities and find it difficult to merge into suburbia. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's... it's uh, I mean, look at Osama bin Laden from Al-Qaeda. He's by no means from a poor background. Right. I'm a zawahiri, his assistant. He's a pediatrician by profession. Um, I think that the leadership or the core crust, as it were, uh, do come from a a not not necessarily a wealthy background but an educated intelligent background and it often happens that in in places such as perhaps lebanon and and Palestine where suicide bombings may well have been conducted by people from a poorer background but doesn 't necessarily mean that they 're the only guys uh, who are involved in these movements
0: mm-hmm. and you yourself um, were you were born and raised in Britain. You were not an immigrant. You were perhaps living in in a culture that was defined by immigrants. But you know, talk to me a little bit about your British identity and, and why um, your link to that was was susceptible um, or vulnerable or, or tenuous, so that you did um, mm-hmm. you did uh, were captured by some of these ideas.
1: We, we have a real problem in Britain. It was the case when I was growing up, and it's still the case now, in that it's extremely difficult to define Britishness. Mm. Um, whereas in America, it's different. You have a very clear sense of national identity. We don't have that here. There's the, the, the Welsh issue, the Scottish issue, and the uh, Irish issue that compounds this problem and then bring into the mix um, people who arrived in Britain in the 1960s after the uh, winding up of the British Empire in in, in the West Indies and in India, you have a group of people who arrived here, you know, my parents' generation, initially for economic purposes, uh, with with some hope of, you know, going back, as it were, one day, and that going back never happened. So my Mm. generation, born and raised here, um, were confused as to where our parents stood. At home, we were exposed to one culture. At school, we were exposed to another Um, So Britishness was never clearly defined for uh, my generation growing up. And that debate still continues today. The fact that our current Prime Minister, who has a Scottish background, has been most vociferous in trying to outline what it means to be British, Mm -hmm. and yet to date failed to do so, um, indicates that, that that problem still exists and that Britain doesn't really have a strong national identity. And the fact that we've got you know, communities up and down the country that live totally separate lives. I mean, in the name of multiculturalism, we've created these monocultural ghettos in Bradford, Birmingham, Burnley, parts of London, where there's no interaction between, uh, you know, native white English communities and uh, the children of immigrants. Uh, so it's, it's, it's very much a live problem here in Britain.
0: And I have a sense that when you first became attracted to a kind of politicized Islam, initially not, not um, necessarily extremist, but just that, that, you know, one of your – some of the words you used to describe what you found worthy in what you were experiencing was that, you know, it sounds like it almost it, it seemed to bridge some of these different mm. aspects of your identity that weren't bridged in the culture. You said it was English-speaking, educated, rooted in faith –
1: Mm. See, when we went to mosques, um, when I went to mosques, Mm -hmm. um, uh, most of the imams came from Pakistan, Bangladesh, India. They spoke about an Islam that was very much village-based, a folkloric Islam. It wasn't something that people like myself, born and raised here in Britain in a different cultural, social, political setup, could easily relate to. Um, We were always given Islam in a second language, the language of our parents, Urdu, Bengali, whatever. But suddenly, when I reached my teens, there were these young people who spoke Islam in the language that I easily identified with, i.e. English. Um, So it took me a while to cotton on to the fact that that the sort of Islam they were trying to sell to people like myself was an Islam that was at odds with my parents, more sufistic, Mm. traditional, orthodox Islam. But the English-speaking radicals were trying to... uh, promote a sense a type of Islam that was, you know, Islamist politicized. But against that, there was something else going on um, in the early 1990s here in Europe that people often forget. And that was the entire uh, Balkan crisis. Right. In that between 91 and 94, you had large numbers of uh, Muslims in Bosnia who were white, blonde, blue eyed being slaughtered in their thousands. And when people from, you know, Arab countries who had taken political refuge in Britain, Omar Bakris and others, came and said to us that, uh, look, you know, two hours away from London's Heathrow Airport, you've got people who are being slaughtered in their in their in their thousands, despite being European Muslims for 600 years. What chance do people like you and I, who are you know, brown skinned, black haired? Uh, got in in the long term here in Britain. So a, for a sixteen year old who's not entirely comfortable in being in Britain, that, that 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 message, you know, has a strong resonance. Right.
0: You were really galvanized by events in Bosnia, weren't you?
1: C- certainly, yes. Mm-hmm. And I think the, the same thing is going on today with Iraq, with lots of young Muslims. Right. But most certainly, Bosnia um, politicized me. Yes.
0: And I think what's also important um, that I'd like to just hear you talk some more about is, you know, it wasn't just that you were um, discovering a way of thinking about Islam and about about faith, but really a view of history um, mm-hmm. that in some ways was very empowering, challenging and empowering.
1: Yes, it, it was a view of history which was empowering, but at the same time, it was a view that was very simplistic, mm-hmm. um, looking back, and that it, it was, you know, like... I think Marx, in his and angles Engels, in the Communist Manifesto, start by saying that the history of all societies hitherto has been a history of class struggle. In other words, them and us. Right. Similarly, the kind of history that I was understanding while being, uh, you know, beside people who had an extremist worldview was very much the same thing. That all history is a history of struggle between good and evil, and them and us. And the good in this case tended to be. Muslims by and large and evil everybody else. Uh Um, So it was looking at the world through that prism and everything started to make sense when you looked at the world through that uh, um, set of spectacles that the entire world was somehow out there to undermine Muslims. There was a global conspiracy against Muslims, Freemasons, Jews, Americans, everybody but Muslims themselves. Um, It was blaming the other constantly. Um, Throughout history and in today's world, um, and it 's a very powerful grip on one 's mind, and it, you know, in my case, it took years to to shed that influence
0: I mean a word that was very important to you, a concept was this of this the global Islamic community of the Ummah right.
1: Mm. And Which I is a big say, lie
0: It's a big lie, right
1: <laughs> Yeah, because I mean, historically it, didn't, it never existed mm-hmm. I mean, Even if you take it back to its earlier stages When the Prophet Muhammad talked about the Ummah When he was in Medina His Ummah consisted of the local non-believing polytheists And also the Jews who were in Medina And mm-hmm. also the Muslims So there was no such you know exclusive uh, notion of being uh, a Muslim community That was set apart from everybody else So at its archetypal form It was inclusive of others Throughout history there are different Muslim ummas, you know, so you look at the Indonesians, the Africans, the Chinese, the Spaniards, the Arabs, the Indians, they were always distinctly different. But somehow here in the West, especially here in Britain or by extension Europe, there's this mythical understanding that there's this global Muslim Ummah uh, that's somehow united against the rest of the world. You only have to go to Saudi Arabia, and I I document this in my book, that the the, the, the horrific racist treatment that black Muslims receive in Saudi Arabia, especially in parts like uh, Jeddah and Karantina, Um, I mean, seeing that woke me up to this, you know, lie that we were sold in our teens here in Britain, that we were somehow not part of mainstream society here in the West. And we weren't Westerners, but we were somehow part of this, you know, global movement called the Ummah, which, you know, it's just just a total total myth.
0: But, you know... the, the truth is that that, uh, as you say, it has not been a, an uncomplicated thing um, for Muslims to be part of the glow of mainstream british culture right and i mean another another piece of this, and i I actually don 't think we t- we 've grappled with this fully in the West in general is um I think that the that the division of the world the the superpower division of the world between West and east kind of obscured the the uh, the end of colonialism in that same period, and, and your generation of Muslim Britons, I and mean, your family is from India and what well, was East Pakistan, Bangladesh. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, that that was real, and and kind of some history that that um, that people were were kind of f- confronting um, for the first time in the nineteen nineties, mm-hmm. and it got mm-hmm. mixed up in that. I mean.
1: Mm. I mean, the, the, see, the, the whole Indian heritage is a positive heritage for British Muslims, um, in that it was a heritage that wasn't by and large confrontational. That Indian uh, Muslim scholars for the 400 years that Britain was in India didn't say we must now migrate to another country because somehow India had become a land of non Islam or Darul Kufr right, in right, Arabic. Right. Mm-hmm. And there's, there are strong theological uh, understandings that Indian Muslim scholars developed over 400 years that, you know, British Muslims now can draw on. But somehow all that's being ignored, that there is no Indian Muslim tradition to, to, to learn from. But a constant Arabization of Western Islam is taking place as we speak. And uh, the fact that Saudi Arabia and Saudi funds are in the vanguard of Arabizing young Muslims up and down Europe is no accident.
0: Mm-hmm. Um I mean, let's talk a little bit about your specific experiences um, in I'd mean, i I'd, I'd like to hear a little bit, you know, Sayyid um milestones, which you call the mm-hmm. Communist Manifesto of, of Islamism, um, mm-hmm. was an important text for you. And I, I think for many um, young uh, Muslims in those kinds of circles, you know, and but, you know, talk to me about what 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 grabbed you about that. What was imp- what's important about
1: that? Well, Kutub spent time in America in the 1950s. Mm -hmm. And there was something about Kutub that made sense for us. I guess the fact that his book was translated into English, and the fact that he was in prison, um, and he stood up to tyranny, um, he translated, he'd he'd, he'd commented on the Quran. um, And he was Seen to be a martyr because the uh the Egyptian government um hanged him in 1966 mm-hmm. so all of that combined um gave him hero status among young muslims on college campuses in the 1990s um more more to the point young islamists i.e. people who believed in a politicized form of religion you know very postmodern uh, it's uh, it's it's a new development um so said Qutb had that powerful um capture over our minds, but it was reading his book uh, that 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 sort of i mean i 'm not suggesting for an instance that ev- ev- for, that everybody who reads his book becomes a terrorist but uh, but those who read his book and then impart those ideas to those who then attend meetings up and down Britain and you know Europe and Middle East and so on, are grabbed by the fact that he defined the world very much in um, a bipolar sense that there was the Muslim vanguard. Who was over and above other Muslims? So it's very much uh, a Marxist Gramscian way of looking at the world. Mm-hmm. Not 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 do you have just just Muslims, but you have a vanguard Muslim group over and above everybody else who leads the Muslim community into confronting the West, um, into confronting the non-believing world, and uh, he he compounded the Darul Islam, the world of Islam, the Darul kufr the world of non-believer hypothesis, and to its maximum, and. I think his power lay in the fact that he even argued that the vast majority of Muslim governments were non Muslim that they, 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 they came from what he called Jahiliya in right. other
0: words you were not just opposing the West I mean the, this world view uh, had a lot to conquer in the Muslim world as well.
1: Well, this is the key. And this is where I think most um, non-Muslims, including most Americans, simply don't understand uh, the stakes uh, that we're playing for here. In that this phenomena, whatever you want to call it, political Islam, extremism, Al-Qaeda, worldview, Wahhabism, whatever you want to call it, it it threatens Muslims first and foremost, before it goes out to try to undermine the West. Um, And Said Qutb's worldview was very much based on the fact that we've got to overthrow the Egyptian regime and bring about a holier-than-thou state. Um, which he called an Islamic state, in itself a myth. But he, that's what he called for. And then that state would go out and attack and undermine Israel and then you know, the Americans and then... You know. I mean, he, he laid it out and other groups that that influenced him um, have put this down in writing in their constitution. So it's, it's, it, there's no surprise that there's a strong political component to this. And that's why it's not a, it's not a cliche to say that the West and normal Muslims, moderate Muslims have common cause in trying to defeat this mm. extremist mindset mm. because it know, threatens both of us
0: Right, and, and over the years um, I've spoken with a number of people who, uh, and not just Muslims, who uh, as young people that, you know, that tends to be the rule, became drawn into extremist movements and you know, one of the things they've talked about to me is the intoxication and the power that comes with that. That that meets something in adolescence and young adulthood, where one's identity is fragile, where one is looking for a cause and um, and an identity. Um, w- w- was that your experience too? I mean, could you talk about the the appeal of this idea to mm. you at that point in your life and in this milieu? You you know, you really describe British universities and schools where these kinds of ideas were were everywhere right <laughs>
1: Uh, among among activist Muslims, I and mean, mm-hmm. there were plenty of Muslims who got on with their lives and went and did normal things, but those who became part of the activist hub um, affiliated by and large with either Islamists or Saudi Wahhabists or Indian Dalbandis. Th- there are various traditions, but th- the first two are more problematic than the third one. Um, yes, you're right. It's about identity. Um, and that's only uh, attractive to us because we didn't have a strong identity to start off with. Mm-hmm. Um, so when in that void, Islamists... Come onto the scene and say that hey you 're not just muslim you 're um more than being an ordinary muslim you 're a true Muslim with a capital T and a capital M, and your allegiance lies to the global ummah, but alongside that, they brought on board ideas of elitism and secrecy and global power, so being part of this movement meant that you were several cuts above ordinary Muslims you know you're by and large superior to non Muslims but mm-hmm. of course, even among Muslims, you were Seem to be uh, several cuts above others. But also, you know, the, the group I was with for over two years was a very secretive movement that had global cells. And this is so, um,
0: Hisboot Tahrir, yes, right, which, Tahrir. Is, which tends to be referred to in British newspapers as HT, so we can do that as well, I think.
1: Yes, yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, HT was very secretive, very elitist. Mm-hmm. Um, so you get that extra buzz of... You know trying to keep global secrets and this elite movement that was always full of people who were accountants, doctors lawyers um, so you know you were mixing with with you know the upper crust of society, but at the same time having a worldview that was different from most normal people and planning something i e an Islamist state in the Middle East that would be expansionist and totalitarian but of course, at the time we didn 't see it see it as totalitarian we, we saw it as a true faith based state mm. which of course is a misnomer
0: right. You know, one journalist wrote in The Guardian, um, you know, just because, you know, the the world you describe of this student activism is full of drama and factions. and You know, one journalist wrote mm. in The Guardian, you know, set aside the Muslim names of the people involved and the names of their organizations, and it's a typical tale of student politics. Endless argument, rabble-rousing, leafleting, wildly idealistic theorizing, and some dirty tactics in committee meetings. And I have to say, I had that impression as well that in some sense this was a student movement like many student movements. But, but, but I want to ask you, you know, what has changed, what has ratcheted up when religion in general and Islam in particular, radicalized Islam, is in that mix.
1: Yes, I I, I know the article you refer to and Mm -hmm. I know the journalist you refer to and he's right in his assertion and he's right because Islamism as a political ideology and I'm not talking about Islam, the faith, but the ideology here was influenced directly by Marxism. So it's no surprise that Mm -hmm. you find those very same tactics being employed by Islamists on university campuses. But what's different and what white uh, liberal Westerners tend not to understand, especially here in Britain, because we're such a secular society and there's no sense of God in the public domain. And because they've done away with Christianity, they then find it difficult to understand what drives people who aren't just politically motivated, but as you correctly identify when religion is then thrown into the mix. It's not about activism to bring about a better tomorrow or or or, or, a, or a communist state in which everyone's equal, but it's about doing this in the name of God, and doing this not only just for this world, but having a better afterlife. Mm. So what would be seen as uh, acting ethically for bringing about a, a better world in, in, in on, on on the far left in Islamist circles that becomes compounded with a sense of religion, a sense of superiority over the inferior non-believer, and also looking forward to an afterlife. In which if you don't do what they suggest that you must do, you're actually brought to account and in, in, in their world sent to hell for not standing up for, for God and establishing what they call an Islamic state in this world. So there's this fear factor put into this that you're actually carrying out religious obligations and the failure to do so means eternal damnation in the hereafter. Right, it's a cosmic fear. So it's actually fear, much, if... <laughs> much, much powerful. Yes. Sorry, yeah, but, but it's uh-huh. quite powerful.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <coughs> and all right, here's something else I think in the United States um, – people tend to think about Al-Qaeda, just Al-Qaeda or Wahhabism as the center mm. of the greatest threat. Um, the world you describe is much more diverse and varied and chaotic. I, I mean, I do wonder, um, you know, where is, you know, where is where was Wahhabism in the mix for you? Um, does the existence again of this, very organized um, global movement like Al-Qaeda also ratchet up that 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 picture even more
1: Al-Qaeda came on the scene much later mm-hmm. um, before Al-Qaeda there was as you currently identify a, a Wahhabist mindset and I for a second don't want to imply that all Wahhabis are terrorists, they're not but most terrorists tend to share a Wahhabi theology um, so throughout the 1990s, 80s There was this literalist reading of scripture, um, and you find this widespread not just in Saudi Arabia, but every Muslim community that succumbed to Saudi influences. And that's the danger that most Islamists politically may well lean towards creating this utopian state, but theologically they're very much... Um, Saudi-based or Wahhabism-based. So it's a combination of Saudi-Wahhabi theology based with revolutionary Islamist politics that produces the, the bastard child, which is Islamism, that uh, that Al-Qaeda aspired towards. So many of the arguments that Islamist organizations were putting out in the 1990s, say, for example, that Arab oil, um, or Saudi oil to be more precise, is a... Possession of the global Muslim ummah or the global Muslim community. I mean, that comes straight out of um, Karl Marx's belief in uh, you know, the, the means of distribution and owning the means of distribution, all the rest of it. But it was organizations such as HT that were advocating that in the late 80s and early 1990s. Bin Laden adopted that argument in 1997 and put it out there. Mm, mm. So there's, there, there, this has been boiling in the Muslim world for the last 30, 40 years, the marrying in the 1960s when the Saudi government gave refuge to people who the Egyptian government was persecuting and then slowly you know the the whole afghan episode um and the saudi exporting of wahhabism and then marrying that up with uh, conservative reactionary islamism and then you have what we have today um al qaeda
0: right
1: but, but it must be said that al qaeda is it's just a name it's it's really a mindset that we must be tackling literalist rejectionist, uh, Islamist worldview, and not necessarily al-Qaeda as an organization, because that can become defunct, but those ideas still remain. So it's not a war on terror, as the American government has gone out of its way to suggest, but it's actually a battle of ideas.
0: Hmm. And my sense is that although you were deeply involved and more and more involved, and eventually completely estranged from your family because of this, it was when you came very, very close to terror when you, in fact, were kind of on the periphery of a murder that Mm. you personally began to shrink back from this.
1: Yes, I mean, you remind me of something that's very powerful. I was part of HT, um, and I just thought talking about jihad or... Unwarranted killing in the Middle East, or calling for um, the army of a future caliph going into Bosnia. I mean, all that seemed like abstract rhetoric that might be relevant to the Middle East. Not for a, not for a moment did I think that once that voice was put out there, once those ideas were implanted in people's minds, compounded with you know the them and us mentality that non-Muslims were inferior and jihad could be conducted by anyone and everyone willy-nilly that someone somewhere would actually act on that and act on my own doorstep on my, mm-hmm. in, in my own college campus. So seeing Muslims shout, you know, the sort of slogans you hear in Palestine or in Kashmir here in London, and then seeing other Muslims literally take up um, weapons in the name of faith, I mean, forced me, as you correctly say, to stand back and say, well, what's, what's going on here? And, mm-hmm. and to see, uh, you know, a dead body in front of one's eyes as a result of those ideas being advocated. I mean, you've, you've got to take responsibility and say, yes, you know, organizations such as HD may not pull the trigger, and they don't. I'm not suggesting they're a murderous organization for a minute, but they create a, an environment in which it makes it easier for others to do so. And so I saw that happen quite early on, and um, therefore slowly started to move back.
0: And that was the murder of a Nigerian Christian by uh, one of the, a Muslim who was part mm-hmm. of the circles in which you were
1: mm-hmm. living and working,
0: yes. it was also yes. really struck by, you You know, you, you were close to people who did, who did actually fall off that cliff, who became terrorists. The, you knew the um, Asif Han- Hanif, who became mm-hmm. the first British mm-hmm. suicide bomber in Tel Aviv in 2003. And the way you described him as a human being is, you said he was a teddy bear of a guy, that he was generous and kind and selfless and committed
1: he was he was and this is uh a, a, another point that m- many of us fail to comprehend that suicide bombers aren't some evil human beings walking in our midst they're the normal caring individuals and it's that that normality and that sense of being caring when exploited by others that turns them into being suicide bombers they care passionately for their causes mm. they're sincere individuals um We might not like to hear this, but that's what they are. Right? You said his Um, very
0: selflessness was the quality that led him to be the person who would strap bombs onto his body.
1: Yes, because he didn't care for his own self and Mm -hmm. he cared for the Palestinian cause and for Palestinians in, 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 in their repression as he saw them in Syria and also in the Palestinian territories. His mistake was to think that by killing himself, he was advancing their cause. He wasn't. He was doing them a disservice. But it was that selflessness that he could give up his own life in order to serve them.
0: Mm. I wonder how that memory, you know, mobilizes you now. I mean, there's always a grief when someone dies, when someone we know dies. But to have someone who you clearly had such affection for and even admiration, um, to have that as part of your experience.
1: It brings it home for you. It, It takes it beyond media headlines and newspaper cliches that these are real caring human beings. Mm -hmm. And it's those qualities that we must continue to foster in order to make them understand that by being selfless and killing themselves, they don't advance the cause of the Palestinians one iota. In fact, if anything, it's done them a disservice israel's put up this huge wall there's no there's very little interaction between israelis and palestinians and israel's response has been strongly uh you know recriminatory as a, a every time there's a suicide bombing that goes off so it doesn't do them any favors and it's not just a strategic thing it's morally wrong it's disgusting you don't take your own life to to, right. to sort of kill other people um but all of that said uh, you, we must be honest about this, that, that there is a sense of real persecution and powerlessness on the part of people who go and become suicide bombers. They Either they fail to understand other ways of addressing this issue, um, be it parliamentary democracy, be it lobbying, be it creating public awareness, be it engaging in the political process, or they've deliberately disavowed that route and gone down the route of violence whatever it is that that mindset needs to be opened up and explored and rejected right now we're we're, you know throughout the west we're steering away from trying to understand what is the mindset that leads people to becoming suicide bombers Mm. and we're focusing all our energies in trying to prevent people from committing the act so in british government circles the entire focus is on violent extremism without understanding, it's actually extremism that you've got to deal with in order to prevent violence. That the violence
0: comes later. Hmm.
1: Well, exactly, Mm -hmm. yes.
0: And, you know, you have been compared by some to figures like Ayan Hirsi Ali. Um, uh, Some have experienced your book and your your public speaking as uh, becoming an apologist for the West and uh, kind of a blanket critic of Muslim activism. I, I see a very important difference between the path you've taken and that of someone like Ayan Hirsi Ali, in that your um, your path out of of Islamic extremism was into a deepened Islamic spirituality.
1: Precisely. Um, I mean, Ayan Hirsi Ali was here in London recently, and we both had a public debate, and we hmm. disagree fundamentally. Uh, those who think that Ayan and I have anything in common just don't understand the nature of the debate we're involved in. Um, Rejecting Islamism, the political ideology, doesn't mean you reject uh, a spiritual tradition of 1400 years. Ayan has thrown the baby out with the bathwater. She doesn't see the difference between the ideology and the faith. And I've got no qualms in saying for a moment that her grasp of Islam and Muslim issues um, has been tainted by her experiences in Africa. Mm -hmm. Um, So... My, my, my experiences are different. I was born and raised in the West. I am a Westerner. Western tradition is my tradition. The Renaissance that came about in, in Europe came about directly as a result of the contribution Muslim philosophers such as Averroes and Avicenna made. We, my forefathers preserved Greek heritage that was then bequeathed to the West. So I'm not an apologist for the West since I am myself a Westerner. So it's bizarre for people on the far left to make that criticism. Um, And for my community, especially the the Muslim community, I want the very best for my community. I'm not hammering my community because I want them to hunker in and uh, avoid debate and discussion. We can't move forward as a community unless we openly have a discussion about issues that trouble fellow Westerners. And my faith is very much based on the fact that here in the West, Western Muslims, Americans, Brits... Spaniards, French... We can fix it here among ourselves before uh, we turn on the Muslim East and suggest, look, issues such as stoning the adulterer, uh, amputating the arm of a, uh, of a thief, or as happened recently in Saudi Arabia, the flogging of a gang rape victim, right. those are barbaric practices. They're, I mean, they're mentioned in Leviticus in the Old Testament. Um, the Prophet Muhammad adopted those practices based on what he saw around him in the Jewish community in and in today's world, those practices have no place. Unless we in the West, Western Muslims, stand up and make that case, um, I, I'm afraid that uh, in the long term, it's going to be, we're going to have more Ayan Hirsi Ali's and more Salman Rushdie's in which people continue to reject their Islamic faith under being uh, battered from, from the, the Western liberal intelligentsia. So for me, it's about bridging that gap and producing a generation of young, confident, dynamic, articulate Muslims who can stand up for themselves in the West and then go back into the Muslim East and shine a beacon of hope and say, look, we've fixed it in the East, uh, in the West, we're equally Muslim, and you two can do the same.
0: Huh. So uh, talk to me a little bit of, about what you discovered um, spiritually. Now, you were raised by a father who was very influenced by Sufi tradition. And in a sense, um, you know, that is one of the traditions that that, that you um, have come back to appreciating and embracing. But tell me what you discovered that, that really did change your life um, a- at this later point as an adult, what you discovered in Islam. Um,
1: much of this goes back, I must say, to American Muslim influences and That's
0: it's very interesting
1: Yeah, and in that you've got um, fascinating scholars such as uh, Imam Hamza Yusuf Hansen from California yes. who I was exposed to here in Britain in the late 1990s and in him and in others I saw um, Muslims who are Westerners who are American, who are English-speaking who are intelligent, deeply erudite um, and connected to a sense of prophetic Islam connecting th- themselves right back to the Prophet Muhammad And they embodied that persona of compassion, of justice, of love, of humanity. Um, And it was really getting more and more uh, sort of involved and close to people like uh, Imam Hansen and others here in, in Britain that helped me intellectually come to terms with Islam away from Islamism, the political ideology and more importantly, discover a spiritual tradition that sits comfortably with other spiritual traditions. And looking at human beings as just that, as fellow human beings. Mm. And it's not our duty to judge others, and ultimately it's uh, it's them and their relationship with God. Um, Sufi truths, or, or I mean, these are universal truths that, that, that chime across all religions... Um, and, and it's, it's, it's having that inner sense of, of, of relationship with God that then manifests in your actions on the outside that, that I, I, I personally found worked for me. Um, I'm not suggesting this as a panacea for everyone, but it's mm. something that worked for me and it very much sat at home with my parents and my family and, and friends.
0: I recently met um, Sheikh Hamza Yusuf for the first time and heard him speak. It was very interesting for me to to read your book and to find what an influence he's been as a preacher. I knew that he was important as an Islamic preacher globally, but especially for British Muslims. Um, You know, he's interesting because he is a convert to Islam, converted in early adulthood. I believe his father was a very important professor of classics, and Mm. Hamza Yusuf has kind of become an important figure. Studying and preaching about and teaching about (laughs) classical intellectual traditions in Islam. Mm
1: -hmm. And that's what makes it so rich Mm -hmm. in that people like him have taught people like myself Mm -hmm. that there is an inherent pluralistic tradition within Islam Mm -hmm. on which we can draw on in order to bring about a renaissance for today's Muslims without having to draw on external sources. So that's why people like Ayan Hirsi Ali have got it wrong in that they've neglected classical Muslim tradition. Um, and people like Imam Hamza Yusuf have got it right in that they refer rightly to an inherently pluralistic Muslim tradition and from which we can all learn.
0: And I wonder if you have a sense of... Um Why the North American Muslim experience is so different uh, from the experience you had as a British Muslim? I mean, clearly, there are many things we can point at, but how do you kind of explain and analyze that?
1: I've met several North American Muslims in very close circles of, of of late, and my impression is that. It's a combination of two things. One, that the the kind of Muslim that went to America um, from the Muslim East is by and large different from the kind of Muslims that came to Britain and now Spain and France. Socioeconomic factors, Mm -hmm. um, you know, poorer background, uh, less educated, more remote and rural areas. Uh, were the kind of parts of the world that Muslims in Britain more or less came from. Whereas in America, I think, uh, and by extension Canada, um, people who had a more educated background, um, middle-class background, migrated to the States. But that's not the full story. I think the, 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 the fact that you have a very strong national identity, that people who, um, as you say, fresh off the boat can come and sign up to something well, That, that, in, that in identity America.
0: is more porous somehow.
1: Yeah, it's there. It's palpable. Uh-huh. Um, here in Britain, or, or or in Europe in general, it's, it's just not there. European Muslims um, don't feel European. There's a sense of rejection here. There's a constant seeing, uh, see, uh, the, the, the constantly viewing of us as the other. Whereas American Muslims are deeply patriotic and deeply proud of being American oh, yes. and being Muslim, here we don't have that. I mean, you'd be you'd be hard pressed to find Muslims in the north of England saying that they're they're they're, they're British Muslims. It just doesn't happen. Um, so th- there's a lot to be said, I think, about uh, America being a nation of immigrants and not having a a sense of arrogant superiority within the country, at least. Whereas here we have. A sense that native English people have, you know, have a whole host of uh, methods with which to decipher the other, so how you hold your n- n- knife and fork but during that dinner. Happens.
0: <laughs> that happens among white British people um, of different classes as well.
1: Well, exactly. So uh-huh. it's, it's divisive within white British people and it makes it even more difficult for people who have a different kind of name, different kind of ethnic right. background, different, different history to, 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 to integrate into something that is already divisive and in many ways, not so welcoming.
0: Huh. I mean, I'm, I, I'm kind of, I'm surprised, I'm intrigued by you, by your um, sense, you know, you're saying that it's, that it's different kinds of Muslims, different socioeconomic classes who come to, who've come to Britain, for example, or to the United States. I mean, when I was in Britain last summer, as those attacks happened at the Glasgow airport, Mm -hmm. Um, Before anything was known about that, I was at a gathering where there were um, quite uh, senior politicians and policymakers, and that was one of the things people were saying. But, of course, it turned out that the Muslims who uh, were part of those attacks, (coughs) as has has been true in other kinds of terrorist attacks, were, you know, they were medical students. They were highly Mm -hmm. educated uh, people who, some of whom had, uh, you know, had deep roots in Britain. So...
1: No, but this is this is a new generation of immigrants coming. My reference was to the first generation mm-hmm. that came in the nineteen sixties. Um, that was from by and large very remote parts of uh, of Pakistan, Bangladesh, India. And if anybody doubts that, just go and visit Bradford and see the socially conservative mindset that you have among the older generation. Um, and it's not to disrespect them in any way, mm-hmm. but that's just. I mean, they came from places such as Mirpur in in, in Pakistan or Silet in in Bangladesh predominantly poor, um, uneducated. I mean, it's not to sound derogatory, but it's just trying to make the point that coming from a very uh, village background into a 21st century dynamic city surrounding, is very difficult to adjust. Um, And as a result, they've I'm not Again, I'm not blaming them, but mm-hmm. a, a new generation that's been produced, which is very uncomfortable as to where it belongs between these two extremes of modernity and insularity for, of, of the past.
0: So there's a different kind of foundation that new generations of North American Muslims are building on and the foundation that... That Britons of your generation mm. are building on. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, exactly. Yes, yeah. and, and you see that. I mean, take for example the, the the large conferences you have in America among American Muslims. I think one of the motions that was passed was that uh, the, 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 the the Jewish synagogues in America with twin with Muslim mosques. Right. Like these, like that's a, a phenomenal America, idea. Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. The ISNA conference. Um, and that that 's a fascinating example from which not just Europeans but also Arab Muslims can learn in terms of maintaining uh, positive ties between different faiths. Try suggesting something like that to uh, the British um, Muslim Council here. almost impossible. only last week, after six years of kicking and screaming, have they decided to attend holocaust memorial day mm. i mean that that's what we're up against a mindset that just doesn 't understand the West, whereas in America Muslims have done you know far better.
0: You know, I mean, I wanted to ask you about this. There's a Pew Global Attitudes poll in 2006 that showed that mm. Muslims in Britain are the most anti-Western in Europe. Now, I mean, I, I always take poll results with a grain of salt. They don't, <laughs> they don't tell us the whole story. There's a lot that's missing. No, but, you know... And they're often doctored as well. Well, they're just, they're problematic. But, um, you know, one thing that it found is that British Muslims, a significant majority of British Muslims view Westerners <laughs> as selfish, arrogant, greedy, and immoral. That only 32% of British Muslims have a favorable opinion of Jews compared with 71% (coughs) of French Muslims, which is quite stunning to me. Now, you also describe this this anti Semitic strain to radicalized Islam from your experiences. I mean, explain that to me. Where does that come from and what's it about?
1: It's a difficult one to talk about, I guess, because um, in different countries it manifests differently. Um, In Morocco, for example, Jewish people have very good ties with uh, native Moroccans and the the native Moroccans themselves. But I think the Arab-Israeli conflict uh, makes it very difficult for Muslims here in Britain to get beyond that conflict and to see Jewish people as that, Jewish people. The state of Israel is a political development, and we can discuss that and debate that till the cows come home. But ultimately, we're dealing with people here in Britain who are Jewish who now feel that on Saturday mornings when they go to the synagogue, they need um, security and police protection Mm. to do that in large sections of Britain. I mean, that's just unacceptable, but that's what's going on. There's a sense here among, um, and it's difficult to say if that's an attitude shared across the Muslim community. And most mosque imams and others have good ties with with people of other faiths, but those ties could be better and deeper. It's, I, it's difficult for me to comment on this because... Um, as I said, the, the, even the, the the Muslim Council of Britain is just is, uh, the, the last week said it'll 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 commemorate uh, Holocaust Memorial Day. Mm. But I put a lot of the blame on what was going on here in the 1990s, in that the, the the communal discourse of the British Muslim community was was not just hijacked but dominated by people who are Arab, who are political asylum seekers, and who came to Britain because they had real problems with their regimes, and they blamed Israel for everything. So they, deli- they 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 sort of put down this idea across young Muslim communities at universities that somehow Jews were to were to blame for all the problems of the world. Um, and again, I think there is an inherent English anti-Semitism here mm. in Britain, which makes it quite easy for Muslims to harbour such views without being seen to be too repulsive. Mm. Um, it's it's a good marrying up of English antisemitism, which is very much hush hush, which which is still out there, um, but yes, not it's spoken about openly. Isn't it? it's, um, yes, it's mm-hmm. there. It's there. You feel mm-hmm. it. It's out mm-hmm. there. Um, and then that's married up with that being very vocal from among certain sections of the Muslim community. But it must be said, I mean, post seven seven, the most anti-Semitic groups, H D among them, have toned down their antisemitism. Now, whether it's a question of strategy or principled uh, change, it remains to be seen.
0: Now, uh, with 7-7, you're referring to the July 7th terrorist attacks in 2004, Mm. um, which I believe... 2005, 2005, was it? Yes. 52 people killed the largest Mm -hmm. um, attack like that on British soil uh, since the war. I wonder how... um, And this all happened after you had left HT, Mm. after you... uh, Very beyond, far beyond the period of you being radicalized. um, Um... has has that? How has that um, imprinted British society and the development of, you know, this discussion, all all of the aspects of of what we're discussing about this, this, these dynamics in British society?
1: Well, seven seven was a huge wake up call to Britain. Mm-hmm. Um, prior to seven seven, everybody more or less was quite content to allow for Muslim separatism, extremist organisations to quite openly discuss whether they were British or whether they were Muslim and then decide in a conference of about 10,000 people here in London that they were Muslim and just Muslim and and Britishness had nothing to do with them. Very deep um, separatism was developing here in Britain and it was considered acceptable because it was all done in the name of multiculturalism, that it's acceptable to have difference at that level. So it was multiculturalism gone wild and then suddenly we needed something as horrible as 7-7 to remind us that you allow people to develop in an underworld in which um, ideas of parliamentary democracy, of liberalism, of secularism have no meaning, then people resort to these ugly means to to, to express their grievances. So since 7-7, there, there have been several initiatives to try to come to terms with what it is in British society that allows for an underclass to develop that's totally disconnected to the mainstream But, you know, only last night I was on a television program with a a British MP by the name of Diane Abbott. And people like her and others continue to perpetuate the myth that there's there's, there's nothing wrong. It's just foreign policy. You fix foreign policy and all will be well. Mm. So on the one hand, you've got that extreme that refuses to acknowledge the fact that multiculturalism has been conducted wrongly and we've made mistakes and we need to correct those. And on the other extreme, you've got the far right that are suggesting the whole problem is to do with immigration. So between these two extremes, I think there are some of us who are trying to carve out a middle path where to say that, yes, there are problems within the Muslim community that need to be addressed, you know, scriptural, social, political, economic, and there are problems with the mainstream, you know, cultural snobbery, right. um, arrogance, a sense of uh, history that needs readdressing. You know, so it's it's a two-way street. So we're in the middle of that discussion um, as a nation, I think, but um, the jury's out really as to where we'll end up.
0: I wonder if you'd say some more about why multiculturalism is such a problematic and loaded word in British culture right now. You know, the word itself doesn't translate as a problem into an American ear, but it really, uh, I mean, what what for you about the British um, experience or definition of multiculturalism that evolved contributed to the to the um, radicalized um, student atmosphere that you became part of.
1: See, the 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 British Chief Rabbi, Sir Jonathan Sachs, um, has been speaking out against multiculturalism recently, as have been you know, the Archbishop of York, John Santamu and Trevor Phillips, who the head head of the, the, the Commission for Racial Equality. Lots of people have been and they're all you know not usual suspects. No. Um but the, the Chief Rabbi makes a very important point here when he says that he uses um the metaphor of a hotel and the metaphor of a country house where in a country house people are guests you know you're welcome as an outsider you're a guest um, in a hotel you're a visitor you come in you have your separate rooms you occasionally meet in the lobby area but by and large you then yeah. you know, pay your taxes as it were and you check out Um, But he wants to refer to society as a home, a home we build together. And I identify with that because in Britain we've got uh, multiculturalism, which is very much like a hotel in which everyone just comes, does their own thing, pays their taxes and gets on with life. And there's no interaction. Whereas if we view society as a home in which we all have a stake, which we're responsible for trying to build together, I think it's a different kind of Britain. Multiculturalism as as an idea is a noble idea. And I'm a product of multiculturalism. I went to a multicultural school. Right. But my, my, my problem with that is when in, in the name of a noble idea, um, we create monocultural ghettos in which We're quite happy to translate and interpret for people to understand how to give up smoking rather than teach them English. Um, We're quite happy to allow for people in those monocultural ghettos in Bradford or Birmingham to undergo marital rape or domestic abuse and everything else that comes with it um, because it's what happens in their community. And we haven't empowered them with the English language to go and complain to the local police or seek refuge with social services Mm. simply because we think it's, it's, you know, it's, too politically sensitive for us to get involved in. For me, that's a deep sense of inherent racism in which we think it's other people's problems. Okay, that's how they live. Let's not talk about it. If, if you know, equal rights for men and women is good enough for white Westerners, it's good enough for the rest of the world. And it's not neoconservative to suggest that these are universal human rights and they should be put out there and enjoyed by all of humanity and not by a certain privileged sections. So I come to multiculturalism as someone who's been born and raised in multicultural Britain and simply think that it's had its day and we now need to move on as a confident society to genuine pluralistic discourse – not dominated by this constant fear of allowing people to live as they want to live.
0: You know, something you mentioned a minute ago about um, how God is um, absolutely uh, has been taken completely out of the public sphere in Britain. It seems to me a very fascinating dynamic now is how Muslims in Britain, who are now the second largest religious group, now, of course, (laughs) almost everyone Mm. in Britain is Anglican. Um, It's a small percentage, but, Mm -hmm. but, and yet Muslims... um, Muslims are important and influential in good ways and bad, um, disproportionate to their numbers, right, in Britain. And so what's fascinating is how Islam and British Muslims may now be forcing or intensifying a cultural reevaluation throughout British society of the place of religion in culture and public life.
1: You're absolutely right, and that's why there's such a feisty defence of atheism suddenly in Britain. Right. You've got people like Christopher Hitchens writing that book. I you keep know, reminding people great. that Christopher
0: Hitchens and Richard Dawkins are both British, but <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, what do people think? They're Americans. huge here. Well, they're huge here, oh. but. right. Well, actually, but, the, the the Brits and they come against yeah. that background of a strong that deeply uh, uh, assertive. secular
0: progressive mm. left, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, well, exactly. A, a fundamentalist atheist left. Um, in that, it's it's amazing that. People like Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens and others, especially Hitchens, I think, the, the, the name he gave his book was a direct defiance of the Muslim ritual mm-hmm. prayer opening. Yeah, God is not great, because mm-hmm. we say God is great. Mm-hmm. So that's very interesting. And, you know, he takes several pops at. Muslims in his book, um, Martin Amos, uh, one of our top writers, has gone on the record recently trying to assert that tradition of uh, a god free society. Um, yes, Muslims, I think rightly have brought God and faith back into the public domain, but it's a sensitive issue, and yeah. it's it's important to get this one right and not to overdo it because where we are as a country 300 years on from the entire sort of reformation renaissance experience and it took two world wars to defend this strong liberal tradition and i don't advocate the mixing of religion and politics in the public domain Um, but at the same time people who have faith-based convictions shouldn't be shut out of the public debate just as you have Christian Democrats in Central Europe, we can have Muslim Democrats in Western Europe, who, much like Tony Blair, who derived his passion and sense of justice for politics based on his understanding of Scripture, but without shoving it down people's throats. Oh, well, He kept it and almost
0: very secret and compartmentalized, or at least out of the limelight yeah. while he was prime minister.
1: Yes mm. but that's because he was advised by people like Alistair Campbell who said we don't do God. Mm-hmm. Um it's it and that's part of the problem I think that um, Muslims here feel that their sense of identity when it comes to religion um, is shunned upon because they can't express themselves for what they are, what we are, same as, uh, as in France. But in America, that's another crucial difference in that God is out there in the public domain. Mm-hmm. So most Americans understand what it means Not always to worship the same God. Not
0: but, but there's a sense that it's... It's done. That we do God sometimes.
1: (laughs) Yeah, but (laughs) your presidents repeatedly say, God bless America. Can you imagine our prime minister saying, God Mm -hmm. bless Britain? People would freak out. And, you know, Um, I want
0: to ask you about this because at this conference I was at at Windsor Castle last summer, I I did have a sense there were some people there from think tanks and organizations that seemed to be mostly being led by younger people, you know, for the most part, British, Anglicans and, and, and Catholics. But um what they were saying to me, one of the people... I'm trying to think of the name of the think tank. Mm. So I think Deficitial it was something cohesion. like Theos or... I don't know. Civitas? It, no, it wasn't Civitas. Anyway, he was telling me that they'd been doing studies. Um, this this person who was quite young, I would say he was in his early 30s, that they had been doing studies, and they really saw a big difference between the generations on this. And and, and not necessarily that, that younger generations of Britons are ready to wear their religion on their sleeve, but that they don't have some of the baggage. He said, for example, that there was a real generational break, that older Britons were very sympathetic to, for example, the kind of Christopher Hitchens approach to religion, or Richard Dawkins, and that younger Britons were just, you know, didn't find it very interesting. Um, do you think there's a generational openness across British culture to to having a different kind of conversation?
1: Younger people tend to be more open, yes, mm-hmm. um, because in their DNA they don't they don't have that um, anti uh, the, the anti Muslim psyche that, um, hmm. that an
0: parents, older generation hmm.
1: has. Yes, I mean, they're, they're, I mean people like uh, Dawkins and Hitchens can say that they're atheists. Or, you know till they go blue in the face, but they uh, they harbour an Anglican world view they harbour a Christian sense of right and wrong they they were by and large perhaps you know they're the grandchildren of Christians, and there's something in I mean, their approach to 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 seeing a church in the English countryside would be different from my approach to seeing a church in the countryside they'd they, they they'd identify identify with that more than i would mm. um but there's a the, the the new generation of people i meet at universities now you know white brits brown brits whatever muslims non-muslims you're right they're they are more free from the cultural baggage of christianity or from other religions um and that's a void. The question is what, fill, what, 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 what right. will fill that void right. in it's 15, openness, 20 years' not, yeah. time. Yes, mm-hmm. it's it's acceptance to anything and everything. When you don't have any beliefs, when you have no moral guidance, when there's a total moral vacuum, um, there's a real danger as to what will fill that. And I think the worry for many people here on the right is that they, they somehow think that Islam is going to fill that and Europe will become Eurabia, that horrible word mm-hmm. coined by people in the United States um but i i mean, 'm not sure if that 's the case because th- what they 're opposed to many many young people is not just um not just Christianity but they 're opposed to practices that they see as abhorrent within all religions so to to argue that somehow islam 's going to fill that mm. uh, i think it's, it's being too ambitious
0: i wonder um you are very. Have been very critical, and and yourself have been criticized for for pointing at um, you know kind of a wild and um, very active, uh, almost vibrant world of um, many many different kinds of politicized Islamic groups themselves, not necessarily terrorist, but perhaps perhaps uh, inclining some young people to that. Mm. But I also sense, as I read some of what you 've been saying recently and look at your book, that you you know that you do see in the very diversity of the Muslim the varied uh, spectrum of the Muslim community in britain you you do also see um that as a source of hope um, and, and you point to that that it is not one thing to be Muslim in Britain and british
1: absolutely, absolutely I mean Islam has never been will never be a, a monolithic entity it 's always been diverse. Um, it's the attempt by people who have a politicized version of Islam post-1960s to impose their brand of Islam on everybody else that vexes me and so many other people that, you know, you can go and practice your politicized Islam and go and call for your destruction of Israel and go and call for your confrontation with the West and you go deal with it, but don't go and do that in the name of my faith and don't expect me to back you because you're somehow a fellow believer. I'm sorry, that's not going to happen. My allegiances lie with, I think it was Booker T. Washington, the the, the great um, American civil rights campaigner who said, you know, cast down your buckets where you are. Um, we're here and we will cast down our buckets here in the West hmm. and we're not going anywhere. So those guys who want to somehow... Distract us from being where we are and working for the common good of all human beings in the West and just concentrate on the Arab-Israeli conflict or, or to just concentrate on, on the jihad in, I don't know, Chechnya or Afghanistan, wherever they've identified the latest jihad. Sorry, guys, that's not our agenda. You know, we belong here. What we can do for all human beings, whether they're Sudanese in Darfur or whether they're um, people who were struck by the cyclone in Bangladesh recently, we'll try our best to help. But don't come bringing on this. You know, faith-based agenda on all of us, but uh, but another reason why. Um, no, I think that's it. you, you well, have a question at the outside. Well,
0: tell me what are you looking at. Tell me, tell me about people or organizations or um, things that are happening in British culture right now, or, you know, within the Muslim community and beyond it that do, um, for you, point in a good direction. They give you some hope about all of this.
1: I think the fact that most Muslims now are. Uh, take, for example, the recent um, teddy bear issue um, when the whole cartoon <laughs> yes. ca- cartoon controversy happened mm-hmm. with, the, with with the, the Danish culture. newspaper mm-hmm. line. yeah, you had Muslims, however small in number, here in Britain protesting against that um, this time round with a teddy bear c- conflict it 's horrendous to even call it that a teddy bear conflict mm-hmm. um, there th- th- There have been no such protests, most Muslims w- without exception. Um, went out there and condemned it. We had two British Muslim peers who went out there and secured that British teacher's release. Um, Those are positive signs. There are more and more Muslims who are becoming part and parcel of civil society. Um, More Muslims are prepared to stand up and talk out against extremist groups.
0: Um, Very interesting to me. A friend who you mention in the book, Majid Nawaz, um, hmm. who was someone who remained radicalized after you left, uh, then ended up in prison in Egypt, because of his membership in HD and has now um, emerged as a real... Well, he's kind of... He's come out and... uh, I I see him as a kind of ally and a partner of you in a sense. He's
1: he's my closest friend is he and we get on really well yes. and I've
0: been listening to him also as I've been preparing to speak to you
1: And he's, he's a great guy he's now mm-hmm. in Denmark as we speak trying to undo the damage that he did in Denmark in the 1990s because ah. H.T. sent him out there to recruit and set up and he did so he's mm-hmm. out there now trying to undo that damage um, and there are there are others there are several others who have just come out of several extremist groups So the, the, i mean you 're right to identify that as hope that if we can get more people out and then get these people to challenge that very mindset that creates extremism and then terrorism then then you know our lives would have been successful but i don 't buy that argument that often people put my way that somehow terrorism and extremism are distinctly different, and Islamism and jihadism must always mm. be separated. Uh, Francis Fukuyama has been recently talking about this. Um at one level, I see where they're coming from, but you can't name me a single jihadist movement anywhere in the world that came out without Islamism preceding it. Okay. Jihadists, by and large, are disgruntled Islamists who have given up on the democratic process, um, who've th- thought that they can't take over what they want to take over, you know, through through the ballot box. So they just just res- resort to taking up uh, weapons. So you know, it's Islamism that produced jihadism. Here, seven seven was carried out by people who had strong links to. Um, Al-Muhajirun. We've got to ask ourselves, who produced Al-Muhajirun? It was HT. And in the current spin of things, we often get away from understanding the fact that it was, it was the Muslim Brotherhood that produced the people that then went and killed um, Anwar Sadat. And today, the people who are in, in prison in Egypt, who imagined Nawaz met, um, will confirm to you the fact that they were, they were all disgruntled Muslim Brotherhood people.
0: So so this is so part of I mean I'm, I you know I did write down a sentence in your book you said every even today a primary reason for western failure in the war on terror is an innate inability to understand the islamist psyche. So I mean, this is this is one thing you would want um policymakers in the west to be attentive to. I and mean, what else? What else about the psyche? I mean we've clearly we've been talking about that this for an hour. Um what else do you want to say needs attention and understanding that simply escapes a lot of the public discussion that we now have?
1: For for most policymakers and for ghost, most government personnel, uh-huh. yeah, their concern is, you know, when's the next bomb going to go off and how are we going to prevent that from happening? As long as we're secure – who, who, who cares what's going on um, among the maniché details of uh, Muslim communal discourse? And for me, that's a problem because it's what we said earlier. Unless you understand extremism, you won't understand where the violence comes from. You can't just concentrate on violent extremism without understanding extremism. Mm-hmm. But there's also the other factor that, you know, most of our politicians here in Britain, at least, are from the 1960s generation. You know, the the whole free society and the sexual revolution and, you know, taking cocaine, all the rest of it. They're godless. You know, most of them don't understand what it means to have faith. And when you don't understand what it it means to be a Christian in your own tradition and what, what the power of the belief in an afterlife can do to you when perverted, you can't then possibly comprehend what is it that drives a suicide bomber who thinks by killing himself and killing others, he's somehow becoming a martyr and going into an afterlife in which he's going to be rewarded? That basic fact hasn't been deeply appreciated by our policymakers here, and as a result, they just think pumping money into resources, be it socio-economic or tweaking foreign policy, um, is somehow going to fix this problem. It's not. It's much deeper. So,
0: I mean, uh, so th- right. And I mean, I want mean, to say so clearly. Everyone also because we live in a globalized world, people in the West, every human being today has a stake in Muslim communal discourse. And yet, you know, outsiders, non-Muslims can't lead really or or guide or even contribute to that Muslim communal discourse. I mean, how can non-Muslims, both governments and citizens, be constructive forces so that that...
1: By engaging, by engaging on key ideas, Mm -hmm. by engaging and putting out a clear idea of what the West stands for, especially here in, in Europe where there's a, a sense of skirting around issues and not trying to get involved in this debate. So, for example, with this whole... Um, recently, when, when, when that poor girl from Qatar in Saudi Arabia was was uh, you know not just a victim of gang rape, but then imprisoned mm. and then sentenced to 200 lashes, there was silence across the West and across the Muslim world. Now, where were the Muslim voices in the West saying, how dare you do this in the name of my faith? Where was the West in stating that Saudi Arabia can't continue to get away with its medieval barbaric outlook unless the West is a lot more assertive Then it doesn't empower normal Muslims to come up and make a stand? And one of the reasons that someone like myself and others increasingly so people like Majid Nawaz and others out there have come out and gone out against extremism all guns blazing is because we had a prime minister, Tony Blair, who had no fear in stating The enemy for what it was. He mentioned quite openly uh, Islamism, Wahhabism, ideology, a perverted sense of religion, and that mindset. It was putting that out in the public discourse that forced people like me then to say, well, actually... We might dislike this guy's politics on certain issues, but he's got this one right. Mm. Now, when when politicians of made European countries pussyfoot around the issue and, and are afraid of sort of treading on eggshells, then you continue to allow for the extremists within the Muslim community to assert their sense of superiority and their self-declared representative tendencies. So it's you know it's it's about holding an open, dynamic, transparent discussion without fear of of, of, of avoiding key issues.
0: Okay. I'm going to um, – I've got a couple of questions from my colleagues. I'm going to look at these and come back and just have a few more questions for you. So take a sure, drink of water first, and okay, I'll if, we'll try to finish yeah, close I'll, I'll, yeah, to 11.30. Give me a couple minutes. I know. Back, this yeah. is – yeah. Okay. So. okay. Um. <coughs> I was gonna I was gonna stop and ask you this anyway. Yeah. <laughs> this is it. it's good, isn't it? It's um intense though. I can't I don't think I can push it much more than ten minutes. Uh, right. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> what? do that? Did I do that? I'm just a parrot, you know? Did I really say that? (gasps) All right. Hi. Hi. Pastor? Okay. Yes. Yeah, hi. Just right. a couple more questions. All right. So How's it
1: going so far? Does it make I sense? Think it's
0: terrific. Yeah, it's terrific. And what we, you know, we have an incredible luxury of an hour of radio. So we will edit this down and I will be able to give people facts and, you know, script in so that they can hear what you're saying and have some context for it. But then we'll also right. be able to put the whole interview out and we have a, an astonishing number of people who will podcast a 90-minute conversation about real important things. So right. I think it's wonderful. Right. Yeah. So, just a couple. Let's more. hope it works. Yeah. yeah. Sure. No. Go yeah. ahead. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it is a trend, and I know that some in the British press have criticised this. That you know, to use uh, or to take um, ex, former extremists or even former mm-hmm. Muslims to become experts um, who can explain the phenomenon of extremism to the West. And I, you know, I know that you have not had an easy ride, and I wonder, you know, what mm. what? How would you describe the pitfalls that you've come across in your role now as a high profile? Critic of extremism, and do you feel that people are trying to turn you into something that you're not?
1: I, I've been careful not to be exploited by certain quarters, um, but it's, it's when so-called mainstream Muslim organisations constantly deny that there is an extremism problem, and that's been going on for the last ten years, then. People like myself have no duty uh, have have no option but but to come up and say, "Well, actually, there is an extremism problem, and here are the details just in case you 've missed it hmm. um, it's It's not a comfortable position to be in because the far left doesn't like this because the far left thinks it gives credence to the the, the center right and the arguments they 've been making right. um, but for me, it 's not about you know appeasing the far left or appeasing the far right it 's about getting um, our house, the Muslim house, in order, so that we can stand up and become uh, a, a dynamic community that's not a burden but an asset to the West. And as I said earlier, that, that if we fix it here in the Muslim West, we can then help the Muslim East. By you know, the, well, every time I travel in the Middle East, in in in, in cities such as Riyadh, Jeddah. Um, uh, Cairo, Damascus, people repeatedly ask, and, and these are young people who aren't haters of America. There's a love-hate relationship in that they wear Western clothes, they watch American right. television, they watch, they play American uh, games on computers, and yet they've got a problem with, with, with key Western ideas when it comes to liberty, security, um, plurality, and so on. Now, when i worked with the british council it was an immense privilege to try to be able to and explain to them look i i am a muslim i was born and raised in britain and here here i this is how i see it and often it helps them sort of look have have a different approach towards the west one of the things that i, I could always throw to them was to say look america's not just full of non-muslims as you hear it in your media america is also home to millions of muslims how do you come to terms with that hmm. It, 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 it helps people look at it differently. That's that that's why I think it's vital that people such as myself who have lived in the Arab world, who've gone through the extremist experience in Britain, who are now on the other side and see Islam to be a totally different thing than we are, saw it then. I mean, it's almost like a religious and human duty for us to speak out. And if by doing so we upset people who are on the far left and people who are on the far right, well, you know, I'm sorry, but we've got to do what we're doing.
0: And, you know, um, many people will ask someone like you or other Muslims, and uh, we've spent some time on this today, you know, what is it that draws Muslims to violence? And But I want to ask you the, the converse question, you know, from your experience, uh, this would all also be the story of someone like Malcolm X, who became a mainstream moderate Muslim late in his life. Um, after he encountered traditional Islam, Islamic spirituality, right. you know, what is it, conversely, about Islam or the Quran or the life of the of Muhammad that, that you find, um, you know, redemptive, not just an antidote to extremism, but that a sense really galvanizes you as a human being now, as well as a public figure. Uh,
1: there are so many examples from the life of the Prophet that one could bring, one could one could bring forward. I mean. Uh, There was an incident when, you know, at the time of the Prophet, young girls who were born to families were always buried because they were considered to be a sense of shame. And one of his companions came up to him and said that, in the past, I buried my daughter. And as I was burying her, she was wiping off the soil um, from my clothes. And looking back, I feel extremely bad about what I did um, do you think God will ever forgive me? And the Prophet smiled and touched this companion of his, and you know, spoke in Arabic and said that God is most compassionate, most most forgiving, and 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 forget that and try to do good for people. But I I recently had a baby daughter, and I, I, and I look at her, and those. Thank you, thank you, and 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 those memories come back, and not just that particular teaching of the Prophet in terms of you know. The repeated references in the Quran to God being most forgiving, most compassionate, and that one shouldn't be uh, tired of expecting mercy from God, and one shouldn't expect God not to be merciful and forgiving, and God is as 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 you know one expects God to be. But also looking at my daughter, I I, I want to want her to grow up in a world in which she doesn't succumb to the pressures that I succumb to. She doesn't buy the extremist mindset that I ended up buying. Um, So it's just, you know, it's not just looking at the past and and, and finding redemptive lessons within the Quran and within the teaching of the Prophet Muhammad, but also looking to the future and trying to build a future for, 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 for the next generation.
0: This notion of Isan was important to you as you were coming back to Islam.
1: I mean ihsan is the highest way of being muslim in other words um, manifesting one's godliness or one's sense of compassion to fellow humans um it's a very high status um and it's something that one can only aspire to and never quite claim that one's mastered um but certainly i mean ihsan is also known as sufism and has many other sort of mm. pseudonyms but uh, Without doubt I mean it's something that one aspires to, but often it's it's not something that's easy to to attain especially in in, in the modern world which uh, you know which has its own problems but I guess it's something that you know it, whether you've attained it or not if you're a person of faith, you find out in the next life and not not in this life
0: how do you translate isonic? I know different people use different English words to translate it
1: attaining spiritual excellence mm and that's just a stab at it. Mm-hmm. Um th- these are these are spiritual matters and I leave those to masters such as Sheikh Hamza Yusuf Hansen and mm-hmm. um TJ Winter from Cambridge and others. I I try not to delve into that. My okay. my fight is with people who want to pervert my faith.
0: <laughs> well, this is my last question. I mean, you know, if you think about your baby daughter, I mean, do you do you worry about how you will raise her to bring together um her her Muslim sensibility her muslim faith with with her British identity, how do you think you're gonna tackle that with her in the years
1: to come? That's a very powerful question and a very um very important one i mean this 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 has been on my mind not just from the moment she was born but before that in that um the community that she will be interacting with is not an easy community to interact with as it stands now. Um, so, for example, when my wife and I named her, we gave her a name that worked in both communities. So, for example, in Arabic, her name, Camilla, means someone who's complete and perfect. Translated into English, Camilla, it also works in you know right. English speaking circles. So, it's 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 those things you know so that she feels part of both worlds as I do now, um, and not part of any any particular sectarian community. Muslims aren't a tribal people. Um, where we always have been inherently humane and outward-looking. In recent years, we've become inward-looking. And if Camilla can grow up and be an outward-looking, compassionate human being and live in a world in which she's not judged because of her gender, she's not part of a Muslim community that comes and says to her that because you're a woman, um, your testimony in court will only be half that a man's. Mm. Um, then I think, you know, 20, 30 years later, we would be successful in developing a Western Islam that's progressive, that's dynamic, that's at home with its surroundings and can continue to produce people who who are part of both traditions and comfortable in being so.
0: Well, that's great. I think that's your last word. Thank you so much. Okay. This was wonderful. Thank you. Now, do you know when your book is coming out here in the States?
1: I, I think my publishers are talking to their counterparts in the states. Mm-hmm. Um, Who is
0: Penguin? Will there be yeah, Penguin here as well? Yeah. All yeah, right. yeah, well, yeah, yeah. Penguin yeah. is my publisher too, so I'm going to try to talk to them. Brilliant. I I don't like to interview people on book tour. I know you're coming here on book tour, but I I've been through it myself and you get into a mode of you know, you, there's an agenda there and 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 ideas become less fresh and but I mm. I, I will think about um you know coinciding this in the new year with the publication of your book or if we do it earlier, you know, letting people know that they can get it on Amazon.co.uk or that mm. it will be coming out in the States. So we'll
1: Yeah, I think it'll be later again. than the new year.
0: Do you? Yeah. Okay. Well what
1: have you written on if you don't mind my asking you? Sorry? What have you written on? Um well, I wrote a book. Sorry, forgive my ignorance. Is, no,
0: that's all right. No well, I wrote a book called Speaking of Faith, which is just about this um my well, actually, some of my spiritual, you know, my story was yeah. of of mm-hmm. being raised Southern Baptist, being raised um, very religious, and then and then leaving that. And but it's it's also about this extended conversation with people across traditions. It's kind of a memoir of of mm. the conversation as well, and, and a reflection mm. on religion in our world right now. So. Do you know
1: Karen Armstrong?
0: Sure, we've had her on the show, and yeah, and I've been <laughs> on panels with her, and yeah, she's I, everywhere. And yeah. I, I, I
1: look it up. I look up your book and yeah. look forward to reading it. Uh,
0: good. Well it's it's really great to make this uh connection with you and I hope that maybe our paths will cross again and we will let you know what's happening with the program. I think we will produce it early in the new year. And, thank uh, you, Krista. and then also, you know, if your book is a while coming out here, we can put it on the air again to coincide with that.
1: Oh, thank you. All uh, right. I think it might be a while. It's different you know how it's like yeah. a publishers. Oh so I do it's terrible it a few months. So we'll working. make this
0: work. Right. Cheers. Thanks Thank you so very much. much. Yeah. All the best. God Thank bless. You Thank you. Too. you. Bye-bye.
1: Bye-bye.